0: We're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. In this episode, Foundry Fellow Lama Muhammad sits down with Pamela San Martin, board member of the Oversight Board, to discuss the 2022 Oversight Board Annual Report, while touching on issues concerning content moderation, human rights, global elections, misinformation, and other hot-button topics mentioned in the report.
1: All right! Hi, Pamela! Thank you so much for joining this week's episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. We are so excited to have you on the show to discuss the Oversight Board and its 2022 annual report. Glad to be with you, Lema. So this is actually not the first time an Oversight Board member has joined us on the Tech Policy Grind. Last season, we had Board Member Julie Owono discuss free expression and provide insight into the Oversight Board. And since our listeners are already aware of the role and purpose of the Oversight Board, what are some common misconceptions that you would like to bust? I would
2: probably start with the Oversight Board is not meta. Mm -hmm. The Oversight Board is an independent body with institutional, functional, financial guarantees of independence that is comprised of a number of experts from around the world that makes binding decisions to determine if. Meta's enforcement of its policies is consistent not only with its policies and its values, but also with international human rights standards. And it tries to additionally provide fuller explanations to the public on the operation of the systems, designs, processes, policies. And it finally makes policy recommendations that recognize the complexity of moderating content at scale. Right. I'd say that's one of the misconceptions. And probably the second one, I would say decision-making is complex. Yeah. We are 23 members from 18 different countries, from all regions of the world, speaking more than 27 languages with diverse professional, cultural, political, religious backgrounds, and, of course, points of views. And due to the fact that Meta is a global company, this is probably one of the biggest assets of the board, but it doesn't make the decision-making process easy because we have to listen to each other understand each other and find compromises to for the global user base of Meta to actually be positively impacted with our decisions and policy recommendations
1: yeah thank you so much for sharing that and to sort of shift gears a little more deeply tell us a little bit about you know your background and your work as a member of the Oversight Board, how does your role and background come together in what you do at the Oversight Board as well as help develop the new 2022 annual report?
2: Well, I am a lawyer from Mexico that I've worked all my life in things that have to do with human rights or democracy. Until 2020, I was an electoral counselor in the National Electoral Institute in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's charged not only with organizing elections, but with guaranteeing free and fair elections. This fits in in many ways with the work the Oversight Board does. And it fits very much with the logic of inclusion of diversity that we want to imprint in the Oversight Board. But the work that we have done is not the work of one background or one uh, point of view. It, it's, it's, it's a result of collective work of the board members which i said already are very diverse and this is very relevant i think for the review for the the review process that the board does because we have, we have always considered context to be key not only to our analysis but also to hold meta accountable to its commitment to respect human rights in accordance with the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and right. Human Rights, what we call the UNDPs, as, is sta- as it is stated in Meta's own car- corporate human rights uh, policy. And But when we talk about context, we're not only talking about socio-political, economical, or even linguistical context. Uh, for example, and w- when we think of this, we could think of the importance that uh, social media could have, the heightened importance social media could have, like in repressive societies, where there's very few other outlets for people to express their views, to mobilize, to hold power to mm-hmm. account, to enjoy civic freedoms, and uh, that's why, for example, we've tried to protect the rights of protesters from around the world. Mm-hmm. Recently, we had the Iran case, where protesters in Iran against the anti uh, against the hijab hijab, mm-hmm. hijab laws were being repressed and were right. being repressed very violently. And they used the word, they used the phrase that it was Mark Bar Khomeini. that is literally translates to death to Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader. And, but it is understood as a call to change the regime. And it was originally taken down and people weren't able to protest with that slogan, but that would mean putting down enormous count, amounts of right. content. We uh, tried to address that and we actually uh, asked Meta to permit it in protest in Iran and Meta accepted very fast it was one of the I think one of the fastest recommendations it accepted but it's not only this context right. you could think of the digital context this is also important we can, we have like very recently we have we are being we are acknowledging that well not that recently that we have also coordinated organic or artificial mm. online behaviors like campaigns that are aimed mm. at harassing mm. people, promoting misinformation, or even inciting violence. And it, mm. it's become increasingly relevant. And this is something else we have to take into account. So our diverse backgrounds help for this. We uh, can see how specific groups that are targeted with certain harmful or discriminative or uh, degrading uh, uh, comments are are, have like a cumulative effect on communities or in targeted groups and have a, a much larger impact on social media than with what happened before social media. Uh, or we can see that some there are some rules that seem neutral right. or could even seem positive to some people. But that have like a very differential impact on some groups. Right, For right. example, on trans people, on non-binary right. people, on women. Many times, so all these all these things, and even the difference that we have globally in the attention the company pays, Meta pays. To the different regions of the world, linguistically, cu- culturally, with the amount of in- investment it has in different regions, is very different. Right, right. And the impacts of this is also very different in different regions because where you have regions that you don't have any other source of information, the impacts are enormous. Therefore, Meta's responsibility is enormously heightened. That's why, like an oversight body, an independent oversight body, makes us look at these issues from right. the perspective of the user, not from the interests of the company. And that is, I think, what we try to achieve collectively and with this enormous diversity and what I think has led us to some of the the, the, the good impacts that we have had uh, throughout these three years that the board has been working Yeah, I really like how you're touching on
1: diversity because... That's something I want to get into a little bit more. So in May, the board announced the appointment of three new board members from Egypt, Mexico, and the U.S., bringing the total members up to 23. Why is it vital to have such a large, diverse set of voices on the board, especially when we're discussing elections, content moderation, privacy, and more of a policy sense outside of Meta? Those conversations tend to be very Western-centric. How do board members from the Global South aid in the way that the Oversight Board operates?
2: First of all, I would have to say that I am one of those three (laughs) board members that entered in May. Congrats. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. I do think that that a diverse set of voices in the board is vital because, as we said, Meta is a global company, and its content policies, its design systems, its enforcement processes— have differential impacts on users in different parts of the world. The way that the company is designed is heavily Western-centric, but the user base is not heavily Western-centric. Right. Uh, centric. So we have to pay attention to the needs, to the perspectives that the global majority has, which is not would not be done by the company by itself, which is, of course... More interested, it has other Mm -hmm. interests that it has to look into. But that is also why the board's independence, not only the diversity, but the independence is fundamental. That is also why the board, having decided to uh, make like the center of its analysis international human rights Mm -hmm. standards, is so relevant because of that diversity that we have in the world. And as a former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression said, national laws do not cut it. We need the international human rights standards is what can give us the basis with, of course, uh, uh, a a big stakeholder engagement. And the diversity of the board brings this to the decisions. But it's not only that. It also brings us contact with other stakeholders from different parts of the world because 23 people are not enough to have like the full vision of the whole world. And there is where our stakeholder engagement with keeping in touch with organizations around the world, not only digital rights organizations, but also human rights organizations that are working on the ground, that have impacts on the ground is so relevant. That's why we open every single decision for public comments. right? Because for us, it is very relevant To hear those that are impacted and those who have been thinking about these things for way longer than we have. Absolutely, and I think you touched on this when you're talking
1: about the recent protests in Iran. But the language of the internet is primarily English, so how do language barriers from non-English posts
2: get evaluated by the board? That is completely true, and that is why we tried to choose cases that are many times not in English because. Meta has to pay attention to other languages that are not only English because most of its user base is not English, is, is not English speaking uh, We have actually some of the recommendations that we have made are for meta to translate its content policies into different languages to the languages that uh, its users speak we have We have achieved that for meta to translate its rules to uh Fifteen Asian and African languages, which include Farsi, Hausa, Punjabi, right. and it's resulted in close to eight hundred million people in the global majority actually being able to know the rules in their own language. Mm-hmm. And but that also makes us translate our decisions into the language that the post was the content was posted in. Because it's not only like the, the 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 usual languages, but also that language. Every single decision we make is post is is translated into the language of the con- content. How do we do this? Using experts, uh, like uh, helping ourselves with experts that can give us uh, good translations, but good translations that are not only literal translations, but good translations that can give us the context right. of the words. Because words have different meanings in different yeah. places, the, the board decided on a case where it uh, analyzed the word "kafir" mm-hmm. in South Africa. Kafir in South Africa is like one of the most egregious slurs you can use against a black person. Yet we had decided previously we had decided another case where it used the same word in another country. I think uh, uh, I think it was in India, mm-hmm. where it re- literally meant non-believers. I mean, it, it, it had. It it was not a slur. It was not a problematic content. But it is important to us, for us, that when we translate content, we don't only translate it in its words, but in its meaning, in a given place and in a given moment. If I told you death to Khomeini is permitted, you might see another context and say, wait, if I'm thinking about like the capital in January 6th, and there were the death to Pence chance. Right. Th- those did create a great amount of risk in that context. In the Iranian context, they did not generate that risk. The experts we consulted told us the meaning it had. So that is how we are able to see these nuances in cases that can have very important impact. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing.
1: I kind of want to get into strategic priorities a little bit. So, in response to some of the board's recommendations, Meta introduced a crisis policy protocol, it launched a review of its dangerous individuals and organizations policy, and created a new community standard on misinformation. Which of these implemented recommendations did you find the most important and why?
2: I <laughs> you I actually would not be able to tell you which one I think is more important or more impactful because in its particularities, the three of them are have an enormous impact. When we think of the crisis policy protocol, for example, Meta, because Meta has heightened human rights responsibilities in crisis situations, establishing a protocol that will help it govern its responses to this in a more coherent and a more transparent ways is a step in the right direction. Even Meta told us that it would it, 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 it recently announced that it plans to create a new crisis coordination team in the line of that crisis protocol. When we think of situations of, of crisis that Meta has to deal with, that is terribly impactful. But then if we think of the misinformation community standard, we would have to remember that... Well, this one speaks for itself, because we, we kind of forget it sometimes, but we were in the middle of a worldwide pandemic in which uh, the treatment of misinformation, or the meta-treatment of misinformation was fundamental, both to not stifle debate too broadly, but also to protect from the enormous risk of real-world right. harm that... Disinformation campaigns could have on a, in a public health emergency as COVID nineteen, and we actually even after after that, Med asked us for a policy advisory opinion on its uh, the way it handled the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, the 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 standard it used, the policies it used for this uh, health uh, um, worldwide health uh, mm. crisis. And, uh, but because it was terribly impactful. And we, we the, the board said that it was in line, the, the, the meta treatment to COVID-19 was in line with its human rights responsibilities. But then if we think of the DIO policy, it being reviewed has enormous impact because it is probably one of the most over-enforced policies mm. because of the grave harms it seeks to prevent and as it stands today it removes all content that it states praises represents or supports designated uh, individuals or organizations but the word praise support and represent that re- represent are very broad concepts mm-hmm. and it leads to enormous over enforcement so the review of this policy seeks to narrow these down to analyze if they can be more directed into the risks that are being tried to to, mm-hmm. to, to, to be um, avoided and this will have an enormous impact uh, in especially in those communities where or in those regions where there are more designated entities because for example, it, we had the mention of the Taliban in news reporting case right where, uh, a, a news media outlet mentioned the Taliban, which were uh, which are designated entities, and uh, they mentioned them to give information about what the government was doing. That the government said, the spokesman of the government said that girls and women were going to be able to go to mm-hmm. school from one from, uh, uh, from one day forward, which was of course very important for the people in right. Afghanistan to no, know. It wasn't actually true; it didn't happen. But at that moment, it was really important for people to Afghanistan to know right. this. And yet, because they mentioned the Taliban and they were mentioning something positive about the Taliban, because it was a positive measure, uh, it was taken down. And this is the kind of over-enforcement that you will very commonly have on, uh, on DIO. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I-, I thank you for going into each of them individually. I think what I want to get into deeper is the seven priority areas that the board is adapting to improve people's experiences online. you sort of touched on content moderation. You sort of touched on elections. Which area are you individually
2: most excited about? I think all of them are very mm-hmm. important because they talk, they touch upon some of the most present issues in content moderations. But one of the priorities I'm more excited about, of course, is elections in civic space, mm-hmm. because we have found that um, Meta's community standards sometimes fail to consider the wider political and digital context when it moderates content on its platforms. And this has often led to disproportionate restrictions of freedom of expression due to over-moderation in times where that expression is vital for a country, for movements it has, or for democracy, as well as it has under-enforced content promoting hate mm-hmm. or inciting violence in uh, moments that are very relevant to elections, to democracy, or to civic space.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for touching on that, because the priority area that I am most interested in is also elections in civic space, Uh, Many refer to 2024 as a tsunami of elections with the United States, the European Union, India, Indonesia, Russia, Canada, and many other countries undergoing influential elections. Additionally, the CEO of OpenAI said to Congress in a recent testimony to expect a tsunami of misinformation during the United States 2024 presidential election. What is the Oversight Board preparing for the next U.S. presidential election, or any other significant global elections. Is there anything that everyday social media users should be aware of? I
2: think you could not be more correct when you think <laughs> of this tsunami of elections in 2024. It'll be a more important, be- we'll have an enormous amount of elections. We have almost close to 50 elections around around the globe. In Latin America, we will have elections in Mexico, in Venezuela, in El Salvador, in Peru, and amongst many other countries, there's no doubt that we will face a heightened risk of coordinated, authentic and inauthentic online campaigns. We have seen in, in recent elections the impacts that certain narratives that spread uh, before or after the elections can have on the elections themselves, on the trust that people have on uh, democratic processes, on inciting violence, on harassing political opponents, for example. I think we have to be clear that the information environments are constantly evolving and Meta has a responsibility to, th- to stay ahead mm-hmm. of these things to establish effective mechanisms, guardrails, safeguards, mm-hmm. to address and mitigate any adverse human rights impacts that can come out of the use of its platforms. And um, I think when, you t- when we think about the everyday users, we, one thing I would say is that everyday users have to, have to always take and bear in mind that safeguarding elections is not only up to social mm-hmm. media platforms it isn't only up to electoral authorities Mm -hmm. either. They play a very relevant role, but they're not the only ones that play a role there. Uh, So do states, Mm -hmm. so do political actors in the different countries, news Mm -hmm. media outlets, journalists, civil society organizations, and the people in general. The way we, uh, we also communicate with each other in social media, the way that we are... Uh, willing to listen to other points of views, or if we want to stay in our bubble with only talking to those that think the same way we do, has an impact on uh, elections, has an impact on democracy, and has an impact on the safeguards, the effectiveness of the safeguards that can be made. That doesn't mean that we have to translate the responsibility to users, not Mm -hmm. at all, the big tech companies have a great responsibility. Authorities mm-hmm. have a great responsibility, but we all play a role in it, and we all can help in that role that we can play. Absolutely. So, if you're listening to this and you're in the U.S., please don't forget to vote
1: in your local elections. They matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I put in my ballot just a few days ago, so this is my this is my friendly reminder. Um, That is that is a good that is a good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I also noticed no mention of artificial intelligence in the priority areas. Um, 2023 has shown a lot of discussion around generative AI um, and taking especially a look at how generative AI may even moderate content in the future and potentially extinct the human race. Um, Is the oversight for doing anything in the AI space? Is it hoping to tackle AI
2: content moderation in 2023? What are your thoughts? I think that from a content moderation perspective, using automated systems is essential. If we think of the volume, the speed, the reach that content that spreads on social media has. And if you see this at scale, the risks can become much graver and that's why we understand that social media companies need to use automation to moderate content this is necessary to be able to review the potentially most harmful content from its billions of users on on facebook and it is way far from perfect there's much that has to be done with these automated systems. And when we talk about automation, I'm not only thinking about the automation that goes into the review process. I'm also thinking of the automation that goes into, for example, the algorithmic designs, the recommendations, the news feeds. Um, we are we have been dealing with this throughout our different recommendations. For example, in the Colombian police cartoon uh, case, where... N- Meta used the media matching service bank for, uh, for the content. It highlighted how automation can exacerbate enforcement errors because one enforcement error can become hundreds of enforcement errors. We're going to still keep on pushing Meta to be way more transparent about this automation uh by placing better safeguards of human review where contextual cues are most required. For example, when the breast cancer mm-hmm. awareness case, where it it wasn't able to detect a text overlay that there was posts about symptoms of breast mm-hmm. cancer that had a text overlay saying breast cancer awareness. I mean, it was very, 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 very clear, yet the, it's, its automated systems were not able to identify it. So Following up on one of the recommendations we made in that case, Meta has enhanced its review systems for this, which has an enormous impact because, again, this is something that can save lives. I mean, if it's it's properly uh, reviewed and if it's not uh, improperly uh, removed from the platforms. Thank you for sharing and for touching on both
1: the breast cancer case and the Cambodia police case. I was curious... Um, In 2022, the Oversight Board received over a million global cases. What
2: has been your favorite case to work on and why? If I think from the time I've been on the board, I would definitely have to go for the Iranian case. Mm -hmm. I think the Iranian case makes it very clear, like the negative impacts that can come from not moderating content adequately in very heightened political stressful moments, mm-hmm. and, but it also shows us how the work of the board can positively impact social movements around the world mm-hmm. and can help people actually uh, mobilize and express themselves freely, especially in, uh, in a case as in the Iranian protests, Mm -hmm. where you're fighting for something so relevant as uh, women's fundamental rights. Right.
1: Yeah. And I really like how you're touching on human rights, specifically for marginalized people. In the summer of 2019, I was a WE intern at the United Nations. And I remember that um, someone from a member assembly was saying that, um, in that year, there had been an increase in deaths and disappearance of journalists, which is very upsetting. Um, and you've touched on this a little bit during our conversation today. But what are the experiences of journalists and human rights defenders online, not in the US? And why do they need unique protections? Did you experience any of these same harms as a former journalist on an editorial board in a major Mexican newspaper? Or as a human rights lawyer in
2: your, in your time before the Oversight Board? Um, I would take a step back because what you touch upon of us saying that there has to be like a bigger protection or a particular protection for human rights offenders and for journalists has to do with the cross check policy advisory opinion, mm-hmm. which I personally consider to be one of the most relevant decisions the board has issued. Right. As, a, as like in, in an overarching decision. If we just take a step back and remember the cross-check program is a system that provides a dip, additional layers of human review for certain content that is initially identified as violating the platform rules. But if there a person is in Meta's cross-check list or the content is gets flagged for Cross check review, it is not immediately re- removed as it would occur with most people, but it's left up pending enhanced review or further review by uh, human reviewers. Mm-hmm. When we an- analyzed the system in, in the Cross Check PAO, mm-hmm. we highlighted key flaws. And one of them, and this is the one that's going to be most uh, relevant to uh, journalists and human rights defenders, was the unequal treatment to users it was uh, meta was prioritizing protection to its business mm-hmm. partners or commercial interests more than protecting expression that was relevant mm-hmm. to human rights one of the things that we asked them amongst many other th- things that we asked in that uh policy advisory opinion was to reverse that logic to prioritize expression that is important for uh human rights from a human rights perspective what we are asking Meta ask for them to tailor their system to protect users who are likely to post expression that is particularly important from a human rights perspective. That is of public interest, that and that is most likely to be subject to over enforcement. Uh, why do we say that? Why is it more likely to be subject to over enforcement? Because one of the main activities of journalists and human rights offenders is precisely to report on or to denounce matter events, activities, situations that are of public importance, and that in them in themselves may be in violation of metas policies and while metas policies allow for room for sharing content to report to raise awareness to condemn the analysis of these types of exceptions requires certain contextual cues Mm -hmm. that cannot necessarily be seen, for example, through automation, and therefore the risk of over enforcement increases. Well, thank you so much. And to sort of
1: conclude our conversation today, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry is a career development fellowship for early to mid-career professionals. Pamela, how can our listeners engage in content moderation or digital and human rights issues, do you have any advice for those interested in pursuing a career at, at an organization similar to the Oversight Board?
2: Honestly, I would initially suggest that they go to our webpage and read our case decisions, analyze them, and even if it's necessary, criticize mm-hmm. them. The Oversight Board is still a novel experiment, but I think that it can be part of the solution, the different challenges that we have in social and like the tech environment. It does bring uh, accountability to the companies in ways that regulation probably would not, especially when we think about the amount of uh, of the decline in democracy that we're having uh, worldwide. But it also it also needs to be bettered. We have to have input and if there's, again, if there's criticism to our case decision, that is what we need also to be able to grow in a better direction to guarantee that we're giving principled and uh, transparent decisions. And I think that it gives a lot of information that can be useful as to why use a framework as human rights, international human rights standards, to uh, analyze the impacts on freedom of expression, but not only. Also, the risks and harms that can result from speech online. So that would be uh, my main uh, recommendation.
1: Amazing. And on that note, we conclude this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Thank you so much to Pamela San Martin from the Oversight Board for joining us today. And be sure to check out all the work the Oversight Board has done in the last year by reading their 2022 annual report online and following Pamela on social media. Both links will be included in the show notes.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.